0: All right turn in your bibles to the gospel of matthew chapter 4 we're going to finish chapter 4 today but where we are so in in the gospel of matthew thus far we have all these incredible definitions about who jesus is his history his how he was born his humanity in chapter 3 we have the scene with john the baptist where jesus comes and is baptized fulfilling this idea of fulfilling all righteousness but at this moment of his baptism we have this scene as God the son in the flesh Jesus the Christ the promised one going underneath the water coming up out of this water and as he comes up out of the water it says that he sees the spirit of God descending on him like a dove alighting coming upon him And then the father's voice speaking from heaven that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's foundational definition of who Jesus is as God's one and only beloved son and he he being a delight to the father for all eternity for sure, but absolutely in his humanity because Jesus led a life without sin. We covered that, some of those ideas last week. In regards to him being tempted in all areas of sin, but he did not fail. Last week as we looked at the temptation and the spirit driving him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, you have this whole idea that... um, um, Jesus is responding to those temptations that came into his life and that example the temptations that come into our life from the devil, not from God. God doesn't tempt us to sin, only the devil tempts us to sin. But in in that example, he's proving himself to the devil, to Satan, to the father and to us, that he is that definition of what it means to be God's son. In in perfection, in holiness, in beauty, and righteousness as we watch him turn to the word of God and respond with the word of God. Now we're going to shift into Jesus' public ministry this morning. So this again, this section is, it kind of rounds out and finishes the foundational subjects of who Jesus is. And then from chapter 5 onward, we're really going to sit in his teaching. Um, but this section that we're covering today is going to give us a lot more foundation and definition. Especially when it comes to the idea of how do you respond to Jesus. So this morning I've titled the message, Follow the Light. And that will make sense as we get into it. So verse 12 of chapter 4, the Gospel of Matthew says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, who lived in darkness, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. What an incredible prophecy. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Back there in verse 12. So. Jesus came, John is where he was baptizing, is considered to be just on that northern edge of the Dead Sea. So pretty much due east of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's up in the mountains and uh, down in this uh, river valley of the Jordan on the north side of the Dead Sea is where John was baptized. And so that's where Jesus was, that's where his temptation was. Then he went into Jerusalem. Part of his temptation was there in Jerusalem. And then Satan took him onto a high mountain again. We're not sure what mountain that was. So when Jesus finishes these temptations and the angels come and minister to him in verse 11, we don't know exactly where he is. But some, in we don't know the exact period of time either, but we're told that the news comes out in the population that John the Baptist has been arrested by King Herod. And once John is now in, in prison, and we'll, we'll pause the rest of John's life until we hit him again, so he'll show up a couple more times in the gospel. So John is now in prison, and that is a catalyst or the timing for Jesus to go back to Nazareth. So we don't know how long he's in Nazareth, but at some point he makes the decision to leave his hometown there in Galilee. This is the, the countryside, the county, so to say, of Galilee. And he goes, and again, this is up in the yeah, the, the Valley of Megiddo. Um, is this valley that's on the south side of where Nazareth is, up in the hills. And then he travels to the northeast where the Sea of Galilee is. And he lands and he dwells in Capernaum as his home base. So what we're told by Josephus, the, the area of Galilee, we are told by Josephus, has over 200 villages. In those 200 villages, Josephus estimated the population to be roughly 3 million people. So we're not talking about a small human population. But what this ends up being is it becomes a base for Jesus in his ministry as he's going out and in circuit to different villages and different towns proclaiming the gospel of repentance and that that warning that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's very near and everybody needs to turn to the Lord. So this is the preaching that he's doing is he's going out into these populations. But when it comes to Capernaum, this is on the Northern shore of the sea of Galilee uh, towards the Western side. Um, Peter has a home there and we're not sure, again, where where Jesus, whose home he's dwelling in and what relationships that he has before Peter. But we what we do know in this community is where Peter's house was. And the reason why we know this is because Christians, over time, In Peter's home, Peter's home became a, you know, a a home base for the church. And this home slowly, you know, they can see in the archaeology, it slowly transitioned over time to being a personal dwelling, to being a meeting place, to being an early church. And they can see that in the archaeology. Today, there's a spaceship, flying saucer-looking Catholic church over this, where this is for sure where... You know, as as much as we can be for sure that this is where Peter's home was, this is where Jesus would have been teaching often. Our understanding is this this probably became Jesus's home base as they're there in Capernaum, which is pretty cool to see. But in this, it's we're tell we're told through this prophecy that it's in the tribal land of Naphtali and Zebulun, Zebulun's uh, again more towards where Nazareth Nazareth is. Naphtali there by the sea of Galilee but it, he brings out this prophecy from Isaiah 9 that in the land of Zebulun in the land of Naphtali it's by the way of the sea so this is a this is a trade route that comes from Damascus towards the sea of Galilee that leads to the Mediterranean another road leads down to Jerusalem, this is again a trade route. So here's this way, here's this path, here's this major road, and it's defined as Galilee of the Gentiles. And the reason why, in earlier in the Jewish history, when the Assyrians came down and conquered the northern tribes of Israel, they dispersed the people. The Assyrians were known for bringing other populations that they conquered and moving them to different areas. So this area was repopulated by unbelievers and their pagan religions. So this is centuries down the road, and this area is filled with Jews. It's filled with Gentiles. It's filled with all different ideas. It's a crossroads for trade. It is a melting pot of people, and it's prime, again, for the ministry of Jesus. But in this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, what's being brought about is the people who are living in this region. And again, if Josephus is correct... Three million people. It says they are living and sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. So again, it's it's a it's a visual picture for us to just sit in. I mean, here's this culture that is just living their lives from birth to death in the darkness of sin, apart from the truth of God and apart from God's light. And we're told that this is the area where Jesus comes to minister, fulfilling this prophecy that those who are sitting in and living in darkness, there has dawned this light in their community. And when we sit with Jesus, Jesus is defined as the light of the world. God is defined as light. It's a contrast between that which is dark and when light comes, light always overcomes the darkness. So as we sit this morning in, in a definition of who Jesus is and what it means for Jesus to come into a culture, to come into an individual's life, the light switch gets turned on. There's, we all can recognize these positions of whether it's culture, whether it's our own soul, that you would have historically defined as dark, that when you encountered Jesus, that there, there was a light bulb that went on. All of a sudden, your soul is flooded with conviction and truth, and a wonder, and a curiosity, all these different emotions in regards to responding to his light. So again, picture that and all these definitions that we have of Jesus. He is now landing in this community of Capernaum. It's a fishing village right there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And these people that in their Jewishness religion and in their Gentile paganness and everything that's combined together, the definition is that it's a area of darkness But light has just stepped into that darkness intentionally. And when Jesus steps into our darkness, he preaches the message of repentance, which we cover this. This is the exact same language that John the Baptist used in chapter three. But the idea of repentance is I used to think this way, I used to be aimed in this direction, and I have turned. I have turned towards the light. I have turned towards the Lord. I'm not thinking the way that I used to think. I'm not desiring the things that I used to desire. That whole idea of repentance, and in that, it is a process. There is a turning, but as we turn to him, there is a process where he continues to change us until that ultimate day that we're standing in his presence, fully renewed, and he's preaching the kingdom of, Of heaven, that it's near, it's at the hand, it's at the door. And we're going to save that subject for next week when we get into the Beatitudes, because he really starts to preach what the kingdom of heaven is all about there. All right. Verse, what is that? 18 says, Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is what Matthew is doing in regards to communicating this the, the gospel. So here you have Jesus is become a public figure already. So when he came to his baptism, we are told that Andrew was there at Jesus' baptism in the Gospel of John. And John and Andrew is hearing. Um, John's testimony of, "Behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes the, away the sins of the world." So in John chapter one, you have this interaction between Andrew and another of John's disciples, and they're following after Jesus, kind of shadowing him. And Jesus turns around, what do you guys want? Where do you live? What are you doing? Can we can we hang out with you a little bit?" And Jesus, "Come on and see." So Andrew is known as the first disciple. He's known as the first one who was called by Jesus. We're told there that he goes and he tells Peter, his brother, he says, We've found the one who we're looking for, and brings Peter to Jesus. So that's there in the wilderness. Remember, John has attracted major populations. People are coming to hearing the message. Their hearts are being prepared. They're listening to the word of God. They're crying out for the Messiah to come. And here they have this initial interaction with Jesus there that their hearts are waking up to this light. And now Jesus goes to his temptation. He goes back to Nazareth. And now he's in Capernaum. These four men, they're now back in their hometown. And they're doing their business being fishermen. So in that, this scene that we see, this isn't Jesus just walking up as a stranger and say, hey guys, come and follow me. There's a knownness. He's there in the community. We don't know for how long, but he's there teaching. And there is a stirring that's going on in the community in regards to the testimony of who Jesus is in their community. So this scene is here, here's one day, Jesus is walking down the shoreline. And I guarantee this is a, this is a day after prayer, this is a day that the, law, that the father is leading and has orchestrated everything. As he sees Peter and Andrew, these two brothers, they're, you know, they're wading out into the water and they're casting their nets because they're fishermen, so they're doing their daily duty. Jesus looks at them and says, hey, boys, come and follow me. And that's the, that's the language. It's come on. Get out of that water. Come on and follow me. And the idea here is I love this definition uh, for me because when I read this sentence in my own soul, I hear Jesus telling me, Blake, I'm going to make you be that which you were not. Come and follow me. I will make you to become fishers of men. Right now, you're fishing for fish. I'm going to make you to become something that you're not currently. But as you follow me, this is what I am going to cause you to be, to instruct you to be, to empower you to be, which is a fisher of men. So getting our eyes off of our just our material living, which our eyes need to be there. And We need to tr- trust in the Lord to provide for us. But getting our eyes on the kingdom of God, getting our eyes on eternity, getting our eyes on that urgency, and the urgency is conveyed by Simon and Ad- Andrew, they immediately leave their nets. I don't know if there's fish hanging out in there. I don't know if they left it in the water. I don't know if they just, you know, walked out and just left it on the seashore. Again, Peter we know is married. This is not... A simple decision. This is not a decision that was just made on a whim. This is a decision in Peter and Andrew's lives that is based upon the light that they've already encountered in Jesus. There's something about this guy. And when Jesus calls them to follow him, they immediately respond because there's a sense of urgency about it. For both, uh, when it comes to James and John, so we're told in, in, in a different portion, I don't remember which gospel, that, uh, that Peter and Andrew are partners with James and John and their dad, Zebedee. So these guys are in business together in their fishing business. James and John, hit, Zebedee's household has servants. Whether these are household slaves or they're hired servants, this is, a, this is an occupation that is providing for them well. So most of this community, uh, as you talk about Galilee, it's going to be heavily impoverished. These are people who are living paycheck to paycheck. They are living day by day for their daily bread in their community. When it comes to the fishermen, this is, uh, this is somewhere in the middle class range. So they're not just leaving nothing. When they leave the seashore and they're not just leaving nothing when they leave their dad's business they're leaving some kind of comfortable lifestyle and again it's in response to the lights that they are being exposed to james and john we get the emphasis that there they are with dad any of you guys have strapping young sons i've got two strapping young sons They get to help around here a little bit in the summertime when they're home from school. You know, they can jump on the lawnmower and that kind of stuff. But when they leave, does it cost me? Eh, I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure I have a lot more cash in my wallet because I'm not paying for as much food. But they can help out, right? But you just sit in these guys. They're, They're helping dad in dad's business. So for the two sons to get out of dad's boat and go follow this rabbi and this teacher came at a great cost to them. And this is, this is a very powerful cultural cost. This cost of family, this is not something that you do in that culture in a flippant way or in a lighthearted manner at all. And all of this is to convey this whole idea of the radical cost of discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus, it means that you're a believer. So if you believe that Jesus is the God of gods who became a man, who died for your sins, who rose again from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who is coming back, those foundational definitions in regards to who he is, if you believe that, that means you are his disciple. You are a learner. He is the teacher. He is the master. You are the student. You are the servant. That's what it means to be a disciple. But there's something about him, there's something about his light, his truth, his word, his heart, his behaviors in our life that cause us to want to do whatever he says, right? And that's this idea of coming and following him. There is an immediacy to it. There is an an urgency to it. This is not for just the super special class of the 12 disciples and the apostles of Jesus. This is a call that goes out to every single human being. Come and follow me. And the promise that we have from Jesus is I'm going to make you be something that you're not. And again, to me, this is, this is always the praise God moment of my life. Because again, I, wa- I walk around my soul and I see all my different gaps. I see my different deficiencies. And I know where I'm crying out to the Lord, Lord, I need help here. I need balance there. I need to avoid that. And I'm looking to Jesus to be my master and to be my teacher as I follow him down this new way. I'm looking for him to sanctify me. I'm looking for him to purify me. I'm looking for him to make me be that which I know that I'm not, which I am not a I am not that perfect son of God that the word of God tells me that I need to be. I only find that sonship. I only find that cleansing. I only find that light in my soul through my relationship with Jesus. Him making me to be something by nature I am not. Because by nature I have sin. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I have no sin. We're going to get into this idea of Discipleship in an Old Testament story, in just a minute. But here, Peter and Andrew, they're following the Lord. James and John, they're following the Lord. Verse twenty-three. It says Jesus went about all Galilee. So, again, yeah, Josephus telling us there's two hundred villages in this area. What's he doing? He's teaching. He's teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame, the report of him, went throughout all Syria, which Syria is to the northeast, toward, it's where Damascus is. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them great multitudes followed him. So it's not just this narrow group of people. Great multitudes are following him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So as Jesus is going about this countryside of Galilee, the major aspect, the major definition of Jesus' ministry is seen as a teaching ministry. When you look at what a synagogue is, all a synagogue is, it's a gathering place. So when the Babylonians destroyed the temple and dispersed the people in 586 BC, as the Jews are dispersed into other areas, they're consolidating together in those different communities to remember and to instruct one another in regards to what the word of God says. So these these synagogues, whether it's a gathering in a local home, whether there were enough people to build a building, the emphasis of that gathering place was a teaching ministry. So in these synagogues, and again, in Capernaum, there is a, the remnants of a 4th century synagogue. And you can see the, uh, again, it's, it's broken down, partially reconstructed, so you can see the size and what it looks like. But the 4th century synagogue, uh, you can see that building and the stone that it was made out of, but the foundation that it was built on was the, uh, the synagogue that Jesus would have taught in there in Capernaum as an itinerant preacher. And in this, there's, there's benches, there's rows, there's, there's a podium and a platform, and the emphasis is bringing out the word of God. So whether it's the law of Moses, whether it's the prophets, whether it's the writings, That as people are gathered together in this space, in faith, that they're opening up the word of God and they're teaching and they're dialoguing with one another in these communities. Now, clearly, Jesus's ministry is also associated with preaching, which preaching, again, it's it's a herald, it's announcing. Preaching and teaching always go together, but a preaching kind of message is just announcing the words and the terms and the ideas without giving the context. What I'm doing right now, mixture of both. We're preaching the gospel, but more on the emphasis of teaching. And that's what these synagogues were for, and that's what a church building is supposed to be for, whether it's a home fellowship, whether it's under a tree, whether it's in a building that has been built. This is not just our social club, but we are gathering together to sit at the feet of our master to look at his words, and Lord, teach us. I want to know you. I want to understand you. I need to hear the message, the proclamations. I need to hear prophecy. I need to hear all the warnings. I need to hear all the promises that are associated with preaching, I need to be reminded that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, not just a citizen of, of the United States of America or another kingdom of the earth. And then a heavy aspect of Jesus' ministry is clearly healing. The power of the Holy Spirit upon him, this is all giving weight and credence to him being exactly who he is. Identi- has been identified as. And again, this is a uh, a lot, of, a lot of service to the Lord and service to people can be placed on the show, on the fantastic, on the miracles and the healings. The Lord still heals people today. It's awesome to see. It's a wonder to see. It's an awesome testimony. But again, these healings that Jesus is performing, whether it's physical sicknesses, chronic sicknesses, whether it's dealing with demon possession. I mean, you sit in a, can you imagine breaking your knee, breaking an ankle, breaking your wrist in this day and age and not having it set right? You're going to be crippled to some kind of fashion. The, the percentage of those who were dealing with physical ailments at this time would have been much more... Grievous than in our own modern age where we have doctors that we can go to to help fix us. But here Jesus is healing all kinds of sicknesses. And again, from the teaching to the preaching and the healing, as people are interacting with his light, They are turning to follow him. They are trying to seek and find where he is. They are going to others and bringing them to Jesus. And his fame is not just there in Galilee, but it's all the way up into Damascus and the Syria. It's all the way down to Jerusalem. So this is just, again, this section becomes a foundational... just outline and statement to his overall ministry and the overall effects that he's having in his community. So now I want us to turn to 2 Chronicles. And this is where 2 Chronicles 34 is where I want you to turn. This came out of, well, this, the idea came out of uh, the conference that I was at. And we have, turn to 2 Chronicles 34, and I'm gonna read a quote out of 2 Kings. We're gonna look at this guy, Josiah. In 2 Kings uh, 22 25 gives this testimony in Josiah's life. It says, Before him, so before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord, who repented, right? Who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul with all of his might according to the law of Moses nor after him did any arise like him so here we have this testimony here's this guy here's this king in the old testament and i didn't i didn't know this it was just it was one of the little nuggets that the pastor said about him this is the only man in the old testament that we are told that was living out the greatest command of the Old Testament, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we talked about that last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's where that command is, that we are to love God with all that we are, with our all. And the second command that's like the first one comes out of Leviticus 19, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Josiah has this testimony, As a follower of God, here is a man who truly made a turn at some point in his life, and in that turn, he made the choice to love his God with all of his heart, with all of his strength, with all of his soul, his psyche. And this is, we're not going to read through his story in Chronicles, in chapter, so this is 2 Chronicles 34. But what we're gonna do is really just pick apart. So as we go, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we're gonna be, we're gonna sit with Peter a lot, right? We're gonna sit with other disciples, we're gonna sit with other followers. But what, is it, what does it look like for us in, in the sense of Josiah is going to give us a pretty nice outline of different aspects of what it means to repent? And what it means to follow God. So when you look at Josiah in verse 34, or chapter 34, verse 1, says that he was 8 years old when he became king. Anybody want an 8-year-old king? Here's Here's the issue of his time and his culture. For 57 years prior to him becoming king, the culture has been exceedingly evil. So Manasseh, You have the reforms that occurred during Hezekiah's time. Hezekiah was a great king. His son, when Hezekiah dies, his son Manasseh takes over. And Manasseh was as evil as evil can get. He he would come into a place like this and cause us to be Hindus. So get rid of anything that has to do with the word of God. Get anything that has to do with, get rid of anything that has to do with Jesus Christ, with the traditions that have been handed down to us, the culture that's been handed to us. And let's reintroduce a pantheon of gods to the people. And these are the gods that we're going to worship. We're told that Manasseh actually physically sacrificed his children to an iron statue, Molech. Heated up, iron statue, heated up with fire, arms glowing red, placed his child into that arms into it to be burned alive. Wicked, exceedingly wicked. He was king for 55 years, tearing down everything that Hezekiah had done in all of his reforms. His son Amnon, uh, Ammon becomes king for just a couple of years. He was evil too, and he died. So now you have Josiah, this 8-year-old young boy, is now the king of a very wicked nation. And we get this testimony about an overarching umbrella of his life in verse 2. It says that he did not just thought, not just said, but in action, in faith, of course. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the le- to the right hand or to the left. In Psalm sixty three, there is a it's one of David's psalms, and in that there's a lyric that he said that he was following closely behind the Lord. Like my soul is following closely behind the Lord, and that's that this idea that's a banner over Josiah's life, that as he lived his life, he was a man whose soul was right with God. And his soul was closely following after the Lord according to his father David. David being the man after God's own heart, being defined as that great king who images for us the Messiah, images for us Jesus. And he never deviated to the right hand or to the left. That's not to say that he didn't make mistakes. But in his core, in his mind, in his heart, in his soul, with his strength, his soul was following the Lord. It says in verse 3, in the eighth year of his reign, he's still young, so he's 16 years old. So eight years old, he becomes king. At 16, he decides that now I'm going to seek after God. So there's some kind of catalyst in his life. As an eight-year-old, all he's doing is receiving from those who have authority over him. We got to praise God that he he had to have had a godly mother. He had to have multiple godly influences, influences in his life. What's interesting that we're going to see in a moment, Josiah did not grow up with the word of God. He grew up with oral tradition. So he grew up with what people knew about God from history in their oral tradition, but he did not have the written word of God before him at this time. And there was a, a, an event or a series of events in Josiah's soul and in his mind and in his life where he was sitting in a land of darkness and he was exposed to the light of God. And in that exposure, he turns and he makes this, this decision. I am going to seek after the God of my father, David says in the 12th year, so fast forward another four years, when he's 20 years old, it says that he begins to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and all the molded images. So all that Manasseh had set up in leading the people to turn away from God and all of this established false religion in his community in the country as king He's already set his mind and his heart and his life to follow God. And now he's now he's going through the purging and the cleaning process. In his own soul, that's been going on. And now he's making sure to do it in his household, in his leadership, and in Jerusalem as a whole and all of Israel. He is seeking to tear down that which God tells him to tear down. So one, there is this... Uh, you know, being exposed to the light where we are turning in and we are going to make the choice to seek after God. Next step often comes to that purging and that cleansing. Turn to, jump down to verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, he's now 26 years old, 10 years down the road from when he made that decision to seek after the God of David. It says, when he had purged the land and the temple... So he's gone through all this work, right? Six years, tearing all of this stuff down. And now it's not time to tear down anymore. Now it's time to rebuild and repair. So he says uh, that he sent to Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Messiah, the the governor of the city. And Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the recorder, to do what to repair the house of the Lord his God. you jump down to verse 10, says, "They gave to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house." This is something this is a, a repetitious idea that we see throughout the Word of God, and this is exactly what we're watching Jesus do in Capernaum. There he goes to a land of darkness. There he goes to a people who are broken down. And he is exposing to them the light and truth. And people are turning in and seeking. And as he's preaching this message of repentance, there's this idea of purging and cleansing that's going on. And now in that preaching, he's also teaching. Here's how you restore your soul. Here's how you were rebuilt. Here's the foundation of the word of God. And here's how we are built up in the Lord. In Josiah's life, there is a physical restoration going on in the community, specifically with the temple of God, restoring worship, restoring teaching. But it's during this time that we're told in verse 14, look at this. It says, now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, uh, Hilkiah the priest, it says that he found the book of the law of the Lord given by, by Moses. So here's this guy. He's a priest. His job is to stand as a mediator between God and men to teach men about the nature and character of God, to stand uh, as a mediator before men in regards to the sacrifices that are being brought to God for atonement, for thanksgiving, and all of that imagery that's going on. This man did not have the word of God to teach from. For 57 years, there's been a famine in the land of the word of God. People have their oral tradition, and they have a lot of truth, But I guarantee there's a lot of mixture that's going on at the same time. And what he does with that word, it says, Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law and the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king, bringing the king word, saying, All that was committed to your servants they are doing. And they have gathered the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. So the money that's been given, the work's being done. Everything's being used properly with right accountability. Awesome. Verse 18 says, Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Um, Okiah the priest has given me a book. He says, And Shaphan read it before the king so I want you to, again, just sit in, sit in the first time. You know, a lot of you may have been raised in the church. You may have been raised in a lot of oral traditions in regards to who Jesus is. But when you first sat down and you began to read this document, especially in the Old Testament, there's some really cool things, and there's also some really bad things that leave you with an uh-oh. Right? I better get right with the Lord. Josiah has an uh-oh moment. And again, remember, he's seeking the Lord. He's right in his relationship with the Lord. He's loving God with his mind, with his strength, with his soul. With all that he is, he's seeking to love the Lord. And he doesn't have a fullness of truth. And for the first time in his life as a 26-year-old man, he just had the books of Moses read to him. And this is his response. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and Judah, Concerning the words of the book that is found. For great wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. So when Josiah hears the word of God, does he take it literally or does he take it figuratively? Literally. And he's sitting in his time, in his culture, And he sat in all that his fathers had participated in and sitting in what God has to say about those, especially in the nation of Israel, but all, of course, that that abandoned God and turned to idolatry and the judgment that's going to come upon the people. And Josiah's watching and experiencing this judgment in his time. Yes, he is seeking the Lord. Yes, he is leading others to seek the Lord. Yes, he is purged. Yes, he is rebuilding. But now when he is sitting in the reading of God's word, now he has this conviction, and the conviction is, God, now what do I do? So he's sending representatives for him to go and find a godly person That can has a relationship with God. That can tell us how we are supposed to respond to God, and they go and talk to this woman Hulda, the prophetess. But jump down to verse 26. It says, "As for the king of Judah, who you sent to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him." So here's God's response to Josiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord, Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. So God's response is, my judgment is coming, but I'm going to postpone that judgment until after you die. You won't see it in your day. But the emphasis that God has and the encouragement that God has towards Josiah is, Josiah, when you heard my word, you had a tender heart. Your neck wasn't stiff. You weren't proud. You weren't arrogant. It wasn't, well, I haven't done any of this. This is my jerk fathers that did all this bad stuff. Look at how holy I am. He didn't have any of that kind of attitude. When he encountered the light of God's word, he saw his lack. And there, this tearing of the clothes, the weeping, it's, it's a public display of mourning in regards to encountering God's truth and the truth of a soul and a community that is in rebellion to God. And God, what am I supposed to do? And God's encouragement to him again is your heart was tender and you humbled yourself. You weren't proud, you weren't arrogant, you came to me in, in humility, with inquiry, looking for direction as your soul was following me. So Josiah, in that encouragement, he doesn't keep the word of God to himself. Jump down to verse 30, says, he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which he found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord To what? To follow the Lord, to to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to take a stand. I think this is great. He's encountered the Lord. He's been seeking the Lord. He has now had further revelation, further light in his relationship with God. That light has caused him to be humble. That light has made him aware of all kinds of truth. He is seeking the Lord. When he gets the Lord's answer, now it's not, well, sucks to be everybody else. His attitude is bringing everybody else into that relationship with the Lord. Here's the definition of truth. Here's the definition of light. Here's what it means to follow the Lord. And Josiah's having his Joshua moment. As for me and my house, I'm making a covenant. I'm making an oath. I'm letting my yes be yes to the Lord, and I'm letting my no be no to the Lord. God help me to be successful and faithful as I follow you, Lord. Because it's not just that I want to hear this, but Lord, I want to perform. I want to do. I want to keep. I want to be faithful. I want to be a good son. I want to be that which I am not, right? And just trusting in, as we're exposed to God's light, as he calls us to follow him, that he is going to make us be that which we are not as we turn away from the other teachings of the world and the cultures of this world and we turn to him. Josiah gives us a really solid outline of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a learner, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the beloved son of God. We have one more idea that we need to finish in. The worship team, come on up. If you jump down to verse 20 of chapter 35. Josiah is 39 years old. He's led a good life. He's led a right life. And now the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to battle against Babylon. Babylon on the Euphrates at Carchemish. Famous battle between Babylon and Egypt. And Josiah as Egypt, again, this is all the imagery for the world and the flesh and historical slavery, all of these things. As this nation is coming through his nation to go up to Babylon, Josiah doesn't like that. So he gears himself up for battle and goes out to confront Necho, the king of Egypt. And Necho tells me, Josiah, go away. Leave me alone. I'm not here for you. I'm going to Babylon. And Josiah doesn't listen. And Neko's telling him, I'm doing what God is telling me to do. You need to go away or there's going to be a consequence. Doesn't listen. Dresses up in disguise. Goes out to this battle. Random arrow catches him. And he is wounded, taken back to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem he dies. Good ending or bad ending? What do you think? Disobedient ending or obedient ending? I don't know. That goes given the testimony that I'm doing what God's telling me to do, and you're standing in God's way, and there's going to be a consequence if you're standing in God's way. So it may have been a poor decision by Josiah, But here's one, here's the parting idea. A call to Jesus, a call to follow him, a response to his light is a death to self in your pursuit and the seeking of finding his life. Josiah gives us this imagery that his discipleship, his seeking of the Lord, following the Lord, loving the Lord, was something that ended up leading to his physical death in this life. But when he died in this life, he opened up his eyes to the eyes of the Lord, right? As you see, as we turn and we follow Jesus, as you look at Peter, we are told that Peter, that choice on that day to leave his fishing nets led him to his own crucifixion. It led him to the light of Jesus, it led to his salvation, his restoration. It led to his radical transformation. The man that we see in the pages of the Gospels is awesome. Awesome! I absolutely love Peter. But the man that we see in his letters, he is a different sanctified man in his relationship with God. But we are told that in Rome, in his relationship with Jesus that he watched his wife die through crucifixion, and that because he deemed himself to not be worthy to die in the same manner that his Lord died in, he was crucified upside down. We're told that Andrew on that day on the Sea of Galilee, that he decided to follow Jesus and leave his nets, that that led him to his own cross, which is known as St. Andrew's cross. If you know, a cross that looks like an X church history tells us he was not pierced, but he was bound with ropes to that, and he died on that cross. James, as he left his father that day, he is the first of the apostles to be martyred. Herod Agrippa cuts off his head. The apostle John is the only one that we are told that did not die a martyr's death. Church history tells us that the Romans stuck him in a pot of boiling oil and God miraculously preserved him and he didn't die. Exiled to that island of Patmos where we have the book of Revelation that was granted to him. We're told that he lived out his final days in Ephesus as a teacher, as a preacher, And we have the next generation that were John's disciples following after John's savior, Jesus the Christ. John being defined as the disciple who who Jesus loved. The call to follow Jesus, the response to his light is always that call to die to yourself and to have this simple, open-handed, great faith and seeking the Lord, inquiring of him, and digging into his word. Lord, I trust that you will make me to be today the man that you need me to be, and I am trusting that you are going to make me be just like you for all eternity, making me to be that which I am not, because that's your mission, and that's the definition and the promise of what it means to be his follower. It's an awesome call. We're gonna turn to communion right now. Worship team, go ahead and just sing through the next next couple songs. I invite you all to come up and respond and remember His body, His blood, and the one who you are following, and the rules of being a follower. And again, there, there are rules, but it's rules that are associated with faith, not rules that are associated with weighing your life in a good scale and a bad scale. Amen?